Enga iwi enga mana he mihi tēnei kia koutou katoa ku Justin Murray tēnei. Ko Maraia Rakuraku tēnei, nau mai haere mai ki te hōtaka a te ahikā. Welcome to Te Ahikā and your weekly dose of Kaupapa Māori brought to you by Radio New Zealand National. Every year they traipse around Aotearoa entertaining squillions of kids and their whānau with candy floss, rides and sideshows. We're talking about carnivals. A sideshow operator talks about the realities of being on the road for seven months of the year. Yeah, I enjoy it, eh? I enjoy it. Um, you get to travel around the mutu. All right, all right. Uh, but it also keeps me away from my family. The downside is I get to miss my wife and my kids. Yeah, I, I have nine tamariki at home. <laughs> Far out. You were busy. Yes. <laughs> As people moved across Moana the Pacific Ocean, setting up house and establishing their way of living, they often started using what was around them to express themselves artistically. Whether that was drawing images on bark, wood, or in the case of the first known people to inhabit the Waiponamu, the South Island, limestone caves. I'm in Timaru at Opihi Cave, the site of the well-known Tanifa drawings. While I'm in Christchurch with the Ngaitahu Iwi Development Business Manager, Joan McSweeney, who manages a joint venture between Ngaitahu Iwi and Agriculture Research. That at its heart is the preservation of a taonga for this generation and the next. Commercialisation of rock art has been one of those areas that they have been very um, um, careful with mm-hmm. and and there has been some abuses in the past and they wanted to make sure that whatever we did was done with the highest of integrity and with cultural appropriateness. Before we hear about the efforts of Ngaitahu Iwi to prevent the over-commercialisation of taonga, we have an archival recording from 1994 of Matsurata. Stay tuned, that's in this week's edition of Te Ahika. As Aotearoa heads into a review of the foreshore and seabed legislation that saw 30,000 Māori take to the streets in protest in 2004, which led to the creation of the political party, the Māori Party, we're reminded of an action taken by Matsurata in 1979 that led to the creation of another Māori political party, the Manamotu Hake in 1980. As a Labour Member of Parliament, Rata ended up crossing the floor. That's where a politician can decide to place his vote with another party. And while we're used to that happening in the mixed-member proportional electoral system we have now, in the 1970s, this meant crossing the floor to vote with the only other political party, the opposition, the National Party. Which resulted in him resigning from the Labour Party and then founding Te Mana Motuhake in 1980. Rata would never enter Parliament again. But someone who did on that ticket alongside the Alliance Party was Sandra Lee in 1993 when she became that party's first MP and the first Māori woman to win a seat in a general electorate. Meanwhile, Matsurata was heading the Murifenua Waitangi Tribunal claim that really set in place the events that led to various iwi fishing claims and the 1992 sea Lord deal. Sounds like he knew a lot about government processes, Māori perspective and fish. He did, and in this kōrero recorded in 1994, he talks about all three. This issue is not new from a Māori perspective. You'll know that for the past 100 years or so, Māori leaders uh, represented the issue of the treaty to directly to both the 
the sovereign and also to the British government over a long period of time. Though not successful, I want to suggest to you, nonetheless, their visits to England and their constant, uh, if you like, advocacy of the need to ratify or the need to do something practical from the treaty perspective, uh, I believe have been helpful in setting a course which has found this generation at least with, with a little more enlightenment than perhaps has been in the past. Of more recent times, however, the issue was given more increased weight. On the introduction of the quota management system, or the ITQ, already referred to by Mr. Marshall, in 1963. The Runa of Murray Fenra, acting for and on behalf of the Far North Five Northern Tribes, of Ngāti Kri, Teupori, Ngāi Takoto, Ngāti Kahu and Te Rarawa in 1986 sought the intervention of the Waitangi Tribunal and oddly enough not over the, the quota system at all. In 1985 <coughs> the fisheries, uh, uh, fisheries, uh, uh, I think it was the fisheries or a combination of fisheries and conservation interests were very interested in the declaration of the Far North area as a reserve and the possible exclusion of all fisheries operating right across the far north peninsula, an area, of course, which is the home of the Ngati Cree tribe and uh, the Teopoli. The proposals were published and immediately brought to the reaction of the Murray Fenra Incorporation, who was the one who, res who was responsible for applying to the Waitangi Tribunal to stay the proposal as a matter of government policy and to seek other matters in, in, at the same time. Additional to that application was also land matters that was referred to. And in, 19, in March of 1986, the Waitangi Tribunal sat at Te Hapua. It was only after a few months of hearing that the question of the importance of the ITQ to Māori claims or Māori fisheries became more profound to Māori people as a direct consequence of an inquiry of officials who happened to be present, who then indicated to the, uh, to the claimants at Te Hapua that the Minister of, of Fisheries and Agriculture was about to embark on the declaration of further additional uh, species onto the quota management system. They were namely Jack Mackerel and uh, I think, and Squid. And because of that, the uh, council acting for the Runinga at the time sought an immediate interim report uh, of the Waitangi Tribunal so that the matter may be reported to the government and the tribunal took its first unprecedented step of actually dealing with an application, though the matter before it was directly related to land and fisheries, it was at that stage it, it was decided to separate both the land and fisheries matters and concentrate on the fisheries because it was clear that any, uh, any additions to the quota management system and that the lack of appreciation by Maori people, particularly on the implications of the quota management system, warranted an immediate uh, inquiry both by the tribunal and those acting in respect to the application. It was clear that this matter, uh, although uh, it was clear, or rather, an appeal was immediately made, which then, after a few days, you may recall, resulted in the tribunal issuing an interim order 
inviting the government to stay the matter and inviting the Minister of Fisheries to stay his hands. And of course that was not successful, which in turn led to the uh, application of an interim order to the courts. And as a consequence of those arrangements, of that action, uh, the government then was forced, and I want to emphasise this, because we've been asked to express our gratitude, now we readily acknowledge that fact, but I want to remind us that the government never once came freely to the table they came to the negotiations because the courts told them to do so. I think there was an absence over a century and a half of some, uh, some regrets at the same time. While I can appreciate the Prime Ministers, who was entitled to, I believe, some acknowledgement of Waitangi, perhaps, and I don't have any difficulty with that, and I don't think any Maori people do, in the balance of things, it perhaps highlights even greater that many Maori people are not as yet confident that the deal that is before them is the kind of deal that we could survive or live with over the next decade at least. <clears throat> but be that as a man, I'll return to that. The consequence of all of this, of course, resulted in the appointment, of course, of Justice Wallace, and the first round of negotiations began in a totally new, unprecedented environment uh, and where you had four representatives of the Crown with their checkbooks, which they didn't own, which was limited, and they wouldn't like to tell us, and while four Māori representatives sat in the opposite, which were made up of the four litigant parties, namely the ruling of Murray Fenua, the Tainui Trust Board, the Ngaitahu Trust Board, and, of course, the New Zealand Māori Council. They came into this issue as a direct consequence of the success of the ruling of Murray Fenua in their application to the court... <coughs> Uh, to stay the uh, Minister of Fisheries' hand in the issue of further quotas, and then a subsequent application to the court by the others following through, which then extended the application of that stay throughout the country, since the Murray Fenra decision could only apply to the Far North region. It was therefore necessary the others to follow through. And the court ruled, not that it was unfair, I think the court's words, or rather someone in the court suggested that this action may, of course, be unlawful. Unlawful in the terms of both the treaty, notwithstanding the Fisheries Act as such. However, common sense prevailed, because in more ways than one, Māori have never disputed the principles underlying the quota management system, namely to conserve the present current stock of fisheries for the future. That principle remains the, if you like, the centre pin of the quota management system, and though it has other considerable uh, usages, it was nonetheless, it was that that uh, Maori people and negotiators particularly accepted the principle of the quota management, but rejected absolutely the creation of a property right, which changed the whole principle of how the treaty would apply and the responsibilities of the Crown, both to Maori and to New Zealand generally. Now, most people will tell you that all of that has happened in the past. In fact, you'll hear a wonderful debate even on such things as broadcasting, how it is that Maori people came into such things as airwaves and so on. Well, <clears throat> plain fact is, if you sign contracts, then you beg later on to tell me that you didn't understand it or you didn't know what it was that you were signing. It seemed to me that for many, many years, Maori suffered the reverse process. It was, it was a case of Maori having to prove uh, their case. 
I think we've gone over that time. We're now into an era where we can, for the first time in the history of the Treaty of Waitangi, see the return of resources to Māori which will make possible new opportunities and new economic and social advancement of Māori people. In my view, Māori people would not have returned to the treaty as a means of seeking redress in New Zealand society if parity existed. If parity had existed economically and socially in New Zealand, there would have been no need for any Māori to call up, if you like, the treaty agreement in a bid to try and uh, redress the imbalance, the economic and social imbalance that have existed. In fact, we have been told of more recent weeks, highlighted often, how terribly bad we are, and in many cases there is an acknowledgement of that fact. Clearly what we need out of that is not just more government, what we need is more Māori with a capital M. The Treaty of Waitangi and those issues surrounding would make possible such a change. It's not only just in the interest of Māori that this may happen, but it's also in the interest of New Zealand as a whole that such an arrangement uh, must be negotiated in such a way as to provide. And without universal support, Māori people cannot hope to achieve total success uh, on this matter. So it is important that uh, the debate, and uh, such as you're holding here, uh, will impact on this issue and help the community understand what it is that's been attempted and to help Māori people understand the new opportunities that are in the offering on this important issue. Matsurata no Nati Kuri ite tau kotahi mano iwaro iwa te kau mafa. Every day, everywhere, businesses decide to enter into joint ventures with one another for the purpose of either adding integrity to their product or to create better financial opportunity. Think BHP Bulletin, the merger between the Australian Natural Resources Company, BHP, and one of the world's premier mining companies, Bulletin. And here in Aotearoa, there's Fonterra, the merger between the New Zealand Dairy Boards, the New Zealand Dairy Group, and Kiwi Cooperative Dairies. And as Māori increase their presence on the global stage, and become more business savvy, joint ventures are cropping up everywhere. One organisation that isn't shy of moving in that direction is Naitahu Iwi. And an approach from an unusual source has led to the Iwi really taking control of how they want Taonga they're in charge of looked after. And presented to the world, as Justine discovered, when she met with Joe McSweeney, the Naitahu Iwi Business Development Manager. About three or four years ago, Ag Research out at out at Lincoln came to Naitahu and said that they'd developed some new um, knitting technology and would we be interested in, in being part of that project to develop this this new technology further and they'd, um, they were using a new machine or an old machine in a new way to use merino and possum to create woolen fabric and um, after much negotiation and discussion we decided that yes there could be an opportunity here for us to work together and so we signed a memorandum of understanding and um, and then started to progress the project further and 
with some discussions here with Anaki Goodall and myself, um, we decided that using a naitahu tonga would be a really good way to put the naitahu um, mark into this fabric. And so we had conversations with the Rock Art Trust um, trustees down in, in Timaru, and they were very um, cautious about this approach because the commercialisation of rock art has been one of those areas that they have been very um, um, careful with mm. and, and there has been some abuses in the past and they wanted to make sure that whatever we did was done with the highest of integrity and with cultural appropriateness. Um, but they liked the concept and they liked the fabric and they thought that yes maybe this would be a, a good way to get into um, into this area. And so they recommended that we talk to Ross Hemeter who's an associate professor at the Massey University in Wellington mm. and he's also a, a renowned rock art artist in his own right and um, and so Ross has just been fabulous mm. to work with he's agreed yeah, he agreed to come on board and he's just put his heart and soul into the into the whole design the process um, and all of the all of the the work that underlines this this project and um, and so he's done all the imagery um, the, the Manu, the, the Tiki, the, the Kuri, and he's worked very, very closely with Ag Research to make sure that, that from his perspective the artistic integrity is preserved and it's very much exactly what he wants to portray in these garments. And so they got together and they made this, these fabulous materials and then of course we had to decide what to make out of them. And so we decided to start with kākahu or, or shawls, um, cloaks. Yep. And so the, the modern sort of version of that is a, a shawl or scarf. And so we now have this range of four, four different um, variations. And um, they're now, um, they've been produced and they are at um, for sale in Te Papa in Wellington and the Kura Gallery in Wellington and Ballantyne's um, in Christchurch. Oh, right. These are shawls that we have in front of us. Can you just describe the, um, the, the texture? And you, you talked about um, merino and possum. Um, so this one here is just merino wool and the brown is from um, a brown flock based in just outside of wow. Timaru. So um, it also comes from rock art country. So again, there's another connection back to the rock art itself. So that was um, completely natural fibre and, and colour, which is just fabulous. And so then, it's not dyed? No, the black is dyed, but there's not an awful lot of that in the, in the product. Um, and these are our curry. Um, the, Ma the Maori dog, and Ross has arranged them in a particularly um, individualistic way, and they tell their own story. Mm. Um, so those are kuri patterns. Um, yes, that, that 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 tells the story, and the entire shawl is quite an individual piece. So there's no repeats in it. So wow, it is a, it fantastic! Is a, it is basically a, a work of art in its own right. The cream shawl, that's um, natural cream. Merino, wow. and the tiki image is a possum mix. So that's where the, the, the possum comes into it. And the, the process of the, of the knitting means that the, um, the, the possum is very tightly woven into the structure of the material, which gives it a really good integrity and durability and wearability. So it, it creates a, yeah, a very premium pro product. These are mill finished, so it sort of, um, I suppose, flattens and thickens 
the fabric, so it's more like a semi-felted fabric. If you actually don't put it through that process and just lightly steam it, you end up with a more soft, luxurious feel to the shawl. Mm. And these are the ones here we have the, um, the manu, so the bird image on them. And um, yeah, and they're a lot lighter and and yeah, sort of flow and and, and crush um, very nicely. Where are these made? Where are they manufactured? They're in Christchurch. Yep. So um, Ag Research at the moment is still making all the fabric and finishing it, and then I go and collect it from Lincoln, and I take it round to my Naitahu weavers, and. Yeah, they're very industrious and there's a whole group of them and so they do the sewing and then um, then we, we add all of the required um, certifications and, and descriptions, put the swing tag on and send them out to our distributors. So at the moment it's still very, very much trial stage. We, we have had quite a lot of interest from other outlets wanting to stock and sell them mm-hmm. but at this stage it's sort of like it's time to think exactly how we'd like this product um, marketed and distributed to retain, I suppose, the special the specialness of the whole product. It's very, very important that we don't lose sight of what this is all about. And this is about naitahu um, tonga expressed in a commercial way. Um, it's not like we want to go into rampant commercialisation. Tourist we- shops. Yeah, um, they're, they're a possibility, mm. but we just need to be really certain about how we're going to approach that. Yes. Um, and also what happens next. I don't know which of the next garments we're going to do or mm. how exactly we're going to approach this. So it's time to say, yes, the concept is great, the product is great, um, it has organisational and iwi support, but where do we go forward with this? And so that's the sort of the next exciting phase two of this project, um, to develop a, a really authentic Māori naitahu business. One would wear a, a shawl, I mean, it looks like it could be easily evening wear. I think it's more formal. I think it's um, because of the, 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 the size and the length of the shawls, mm. they're definitely sort of for more of a, a formal or, or evening type attire, or else very cold weather. Um, but... Mm. I do, I do wear one to work occasionally yeah. and feel very special and very <laughs> conspicuous. Um, and, and those people that have bought them have commented on basically how they're wrapping themselves up in a treasure and it does feel very special. Mm. And despite the posters being, um, we have a very lovely lady who I've just found out is a receptionist, <laughs> um, wearing a moko kowai, it's not necessarily targeted um, to, to Māori people, it's, it's for everyone. Most definitely. Um, and I suppose what we're trying to do here is to um, depict the Māori story, though. You know, there's been a very strong um, desire for, especially tourists coming into New Zealand, to, to get access to authentic Māori um, product. And so what we've done is we've packaged this up to make sure that it basically meets all of those requirements and has a really, really strong... Um, cultural component right through every aspect of the product, including how we market and sell it. Mm. And so, Joan, how do you fit into the scheme of things? How long have you been working at Naitahu? Um, I've been with Naitahu for nearly five years. Yeah. So I came as a, I suppose, as a, as a new white girl. 
um, and sort of thought, oh, this is a pretty cool organisation and, and would I fit and how would I fit? And, and I suppose I've got a very strong um, business commercial background in developing small businesses. Oh, OK. Cool. So my, um, my role here is basically to work with... Um, Papatapurunanga in, in their commercial and their business aspirations and try and step them through that process. And um, which has been a really interesting journey to go on. So it's sort of like I, I have a, a foot in both sides of the organisation, one in the commercial side and then one in the cultural side. And it's my job to try and sort of meld those two together without ever disrespecting both sides. Mm. And um, and so this has been a yeah a really good project which actually brings out those two things. And so along the way I've learnt um, an awful lot about the cultural significance of different things. Um, but also at the same time, because I'm not Naitahu, um, the people around me that are continually make sure that I do and say the right thing and that I've, I've done the right consultation mm. with the right people. And um, So it's been a really, really good sort of self-monitoring process, yeah. um, which has just been, yeah... Which has just been fabulous. Kia ora koutou. Ko Auraki, te Moka, Ko Waimakiriri, te Awa, Ko Charlotte Jane, te Waka, Ko Kati, Aotearoa, te Iwi, Ko McSweeney, te Hapu, Nō Ototahi Ahau, Ko Joan, Toku Ikua, Ki te Runanga o Ngaitahu, Ahau Imahi Ana, Nō Reira, Tina Koutou. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Kia ora, Joan McSweeney, Business Development Manager of Te Runaka o Kaitahu, talking with Justine about the clothing range, Aho Creations, that depicts stylized imagery based on the rock art drawings that can be found in caves around Te Waipaunamu. And Joan told me, Mariah, that a percentage of the business profits made by Aho Creations is fed back to the Ngaitahu Rock Art Trust, the group set up by Ngaitahu to maintain and curate the rock art. That's right. And last September, I met with the curator of that trust, Amanda Simon, who took me on a tour of the Ōpihi site in South Canterbury, just out of Timaru, to a cave where the most famous of rock art images can be found. And if you can remember the days when it cost 20 cents to send a letter, the stamps depict one of the Tanifa images from that cave. So Mariah, how did it feel seeing Tanifa depicted in drawings that are regarded as the earliest documented form of Māori art? Well, I don't know if you've seen the film The English Patient, but in the opening credits, right, there are shots of someone painting using a brush. And as we watch, the paintings are of figures. Well, that's what the art looked like to me. And you get the feeling that, well, you're looking at something really ancient. It was Dutch artist Theo Schoen that first discovered the rock art right back in the late 1940s? No, it was actually earlier than that. The first recorded note was made by surveyor Walter Mantel in 1852. Schoen was a real advocate, though, although maybe a bit too much, eh? because somewhat controversially he ended up touching up some of the imagery of the rock art himself with his own charcoal. So what introducing a modern touch-up to something that's possibly centuries old? That's right. What about now, Mariah? I understand these issues around vandalism. 
There is, and that's something Amanda, uh, curator of the Naitahu Māori Rock Art Trust, Alan Talbot, he's the chairman of the board of the South Canterbury Historic Places Trust, and Sue Eddington, she's the local iwi representative from the Waihaurunanga, that's something they really feel passionate about. They're like Joan McSweeney, trying to retain cultural integrity while protecting a taonga. That's right, as well as ensuring their perspective of what they represent is at the forefront one of the better known rock art sites in New Zealand. It's uh, the design work uh, at the rock art site featured on a stamp in the late 1970s, early 1980s and um, we're going there today just to talk about the management of the site. Uh, The site has a covenant over it with the New Zealand Historic Places Trust but um, there are a lot of other values on the land that that we're currently looking at. There's some native bats up there and a rare plant. So we're meeting some people from Dock and the Queen Elizabeth II Trust and some other people from Historic Places Trust just to discuss strategies and management of that particular site. Is it on somebody's private land? It is, yeah. Um, it's uh, on, an, on, a, on private land, on an operating farm, as are as, um, most of the rock art sites. Um, there are only... I can think of maybe two in the South Canterbury region that are not on private land. So the vast majority of the rock art sites, of which there are around 550 within Naitahu's tribal boundaries, um, are on private land, which is um, an issue in terms of their management. Um, yeah, I guess it, it, it's a bit of a it provides somewhat of an obstacle in terms of um, iwi involvement uh, with the management of the sites. Well, it can do, but having said that, the landowners, uh, the vast majority of landowners, are very supportive um, of any work to protect the sites and are happy to support the marais, the local marais, and their efforts to um, to manage the cultural values on their property. And they're our greatest allies in terms of protecting the rock art because they're on there on the spot and they know the land and um, yeah, just very supportive because they see the rock art also as their their local local heritage, their local South Canterbury um, heritage. So, Alan, what is rock art? Rock art? Well, rock art is, and, and Amanda is really the best one to tell you, but um, it is. Um, we've discovered it in many um, limestone shelters throughout South Canterbury and we believe it relates to the um, earlier uh, Maori um, occupation uh, of this area probably relates to when people were moving about the countryside and may have sheltered in these in these um, um, uh, limestone caves. Um, That's some, because some of it is really is is really artistic, and you'll see one today that it, it's real art. Were you involved in the unearthing of this no, one originally? No, I, I, no, I, no, um, In my youth, I lived, I lived uh, in the in the limestone area. And I was very familiar with with rock art. Uh, it was just the accepted thing. We didn't really think too much about it. And my attention became very much uh, drawn to it 
when my wife, who is English, arrived in New Zealand and discovered that we had, uh, which is supposed to be a very new country, we had we had uh, heritage that looked as if it could be hundreds of years old, and she was really fascinated. And and she had come from the city of York, where they have a tremendous uh, heritage. Caves is that because Naitahu were largely nomadic? It's a reflection of of the lifestyle of the of the Fano and the Iwi that were down here in the early days. And um, so by early days, what day, dates are we talking? Um, from from settlement. Uh, up, up through to colonisation, so um, as old as a thousand years, possibly. Uh, and the, the lifestyle or the lifeways of the of the Maori down in the South Island are quite different from the North. Um, in the North Island, there's a more settled lifestyle based around horticulture, and in the South, um, uh, the common kind of cultivars like kumara could not be grown past Banks Peninsula. So the lifestyle was much more based on hunting and gathering and moving seasonally around the landscape to um, to collect resources as they became available. So as, as part of this moving moving around the landscape and um, to, um, to gather different resources, um, the, rock art, the rock art sites are often located in areas where people were travelling through. Um, it's partly to do with geology as well. The, the limestone provides a a really nice canvas uh, for the creation of art, a pale, creamy, smooth surface to draw on and also to carve into. And um, a lot of the rock art sites are located, obviously, in the limestone, but um, along the banks of the rivers where the limestone is, which were also the places that people were using as trails up and from the coast up into the high country. So could you say that some of them were directions? Oh, I don't think you could. We there's unfortunately a lot of the uh, the oral traditions or the um, the uh, the kōrero around the rock art no longer ex- exists. It's been lost to us. So it, it, we we really can't say for sure what the meaning of the rock art is or the intent of the rock art. Um, you know, it could could be. Uh, could be whakapapa, could be directions, could be stories, could be a means of teaching teaching people, um, could be just a, a, an artistic expression of the, the things that were seen in the local, the local landscape. So uh, we try not to draw an interpretation from the rock art or put an interpretation on it because um, we really have no idea if that would be correct or not and we try not to generate misinformation about, about the sites or about the art itself. There must be some ongoing research into it though, right? Uh, yeah, our, as a trust, our research is more focused on the conservation and management of the sites and um, less focused on their interpretation um, because it's, um, it's just difficult to find information. A lot of that information is gone in terms of the meaning and intent. But having said that, um, you know, different research that we're doing includes analysis of the pigments used in the drawings to see... Um, where the pigments were sourced, so sourcing studies. Um, Alan, where are we heading exactly? <laughs> we're heading inland, so we're heading um, westward, um, and it would be approximately 35k from Timaru. Okay, so we've just um, traversed a couple of fences, and we seem to be heading down a little bit of a, a gully. 
Yeah, just um, we're heading down to the Opahi Tanifa site now, and um, it's just situated in a in a little gully which has a creek running through it, and um, it's part of the uh, a small tributary of the Opahi River. So this little creek that we come to um, beside the Tanifa Cave runs down into the Opahi River, which was pretty much a main highway for the early early people here, travelling from the coast, the coastal kaik, and heading up into the um, highlands and um, places like that up to the inland lakes to collect kai. So Amanda, what is the kai? Um, oh, village, uh, settled village, like kainga, kainga, yeah. Kai. So it's kaika. Kaika, yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> so what are these here that we're coming towards then? Um, this is just part of the limestone um, geology of the area. So these are limestone outcrops. And limestone's a really soft rock, and um, limestone's created it's, uh, by marine sediment. So millions and millions of years ago, marine sediment was laid down. And um, so you see the bands in the rock um, where different, different parts of sediment, different layers of sediment have been laid down. And um, millions of years later, um, softer parts of those sediments get weathered out by wind or water or whatever, and that's how the caves are formed. So where we're walking along, along at the moment, this is where Kaitahu used to traverse. Um, yeah, well, uh, Kaitahu, uh, Ngāti Māmoi, Waitaha, um, all of the earlier tribes over hundreds and hundreds of years, yes. What we're coming to now is one of the limestone shelters and it's housing a whole lot of um, early historic farming equipment and one of the things that I really like about coming down into this uh, this little gully, taking people down to the Tanifar site, is that it's like walking um, back through time. So we started up at the top in our cars in modern day, and we're moving back down into the historic period here with all this old farming equipment. And the further down we go, you know, the further back in history we travel. So it's um, it's a really excellent site for. I think kind of getting people aware of the of many layers of history that um, you know are reflected in this country. Amanda Simon, curator of the Ngaitahu Māori Rock Art Trust, Alan Talbot, chairman of the board of the South Canterbury Historic Places Trust, and don't forget at our website there are details about this week's program because next week Fano Ma, I am in the cave looking at the Tanifa rock art. <laughs> Before Cirque du Soleil and all those flash circuses, it was the carnival that provided big city thrills to small towns. What with the candy floss, dodgem cars, ghost train and sideshows. In every Labour weekend of my childhood, the carnival hit the Tumwana showgrounds in Hastings, where more often than not, I spent a miserable time sitting in the car or crying because I had lost all my money at the sideshows. One time, Justine... I lost all the money Dad had given me in the first five minutes that I'd been at the carnival. Hasn't anyone ever told you, Mariah, do not trust the clowns? <laughs> Don't trust the fellas behind the sideshows who go, oh, yeah, yeah, you can win this 20 bucks, easy as. Yeah, well, I lost all my money in the first five minutes, and then I got teased mercilessly by my brothers and had to spend the rest of the time sitting at the car. But thankfully, for this next whānau coming up in our next audio piece, it was more of a positive outcome. Two games, $5, folks. All you got to do is knock the blocks off the table to win a prize. 
$15 or your choice of a soft toy. Give it a go, folks. Don't be shy. Step up and give it a go. Have you been doing this for long? Yes. Four months. So what happens when the kids come up here and start crying? When they lose oh, their money? I just help them. <laughs> I just give them. Yeah, you just they, send they, them away. Yeah, yeah, well, the young one, they really don't have a choice, you know, but I help them and I help them out and they let them win something. Yeah, you know, I mean, this, this sort of game is hard for the young Tamariki, but uh, I just give them encouragement and even help them out a bit, you know, help them knock the block over. <laughs> so what do you call, have you, did you always want to work in carnivals? Because they call people who work in carnivals carnies, eh? Yes. Yep, yep, call, so you're a carny? carny yep, working. Oh, I actually had a job working as scaff. I was a scaffolder for three years. And uh, there's an auntie of mine that works on this job. And when I got laid off from my scaffolding job, um, she encouraged me to join the, join the crew here because they were short of workers. Uh, I've been with them for four months now. And I enjoy it, eh? I enjoy it. Um, you get to travel around the mutsu. Aye, aye. Uh, but it also keeps me away from my family. I, I live in Hamilton, yeah, um, and I get to travel with these guys, which is a good, good advantage for me. You know, and uh, get to travel around the mutu. But um, the downside is I get to miss my wife and my kids. Yeah, I, I have nine tamariki at home. <laughs> Far out! You were busy. Yes. <laughs> What's and your name? Charlie. Yeah, Charlie. I'm a King Country boy at heart. Yep. But uh, yeah, it's good. It's good. I wouldn't be here otherwise if it wasn't. You know, um, seeing the kids enjoy themselves and you know put a smile on their face. So how does it work? I mean, does the money that you guys, that people pay to mm-hmm. do these sideshows, yep. is um, that what's used to get the prizes? Yeah, yeah. And the money we 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 um, take off the the public, um, it's like used for wages, um, the rent of the the grounds you know, and each each store you see here is, needs to be rented to the council yeah and um, the money we collect of the public goes towards um, like wages rent power um, expenses like petrol food you know, so it covers quite a range of um, stuff that we you know, need to do with the cash um, then and some of it gets banked you know for um, like maintenance work needs done on the rides or um, of sideshows, you know. Um, like um, these balls might go missing through the shows, you know, town to town, and you're gonna fork out for more, um, upgrade the equipment, that sort of thing. So that's what pretty much the money's used for too. Mm. So your one here is called the block- this is called the blockbuster Buster. stand. Mm. Um, I've been running this stand for four months. And what do people have to do? Uh, all the people have to do here is uh, pay $5, they get two balls, all they got to do is knock the blocks off the table. And how many blocks are there? Uh, there's three blocks. And what distance are we talking from where you're throwing the block yep. to where the blocks so are? So the public are on that side of the table, all they got to do is... So aim. that's about a person length away where the blocks yeah, are, right? Yeah, about a metre or so away. And all they got to do is uh, throw the ball at the blocks, try and knock all three blocks off the table to win the prize. Now you've got money taped around two of the blocks. Yes. It's a five dollar note and a ten dollar note. So do uh, they, they win fifteen dollars? Re- those notes represent uh, what the prize is available to the public, which is fifteen dollars. And they also have a choice of a soft cuddly toy, which is a puppy dog, or a black bulldog. Mm. So that's what the public can uh, 
win with their five dollars. If to knock the blocks off, they, that's what they must do. To, so, uh, how many winners have you had today, Charlie? Oh, uh, off the top of my head, over a dozen. Yeah, majority of them all. Uh, I've had uh, three puppy winners, like soft toy winners, and the rest have all been cash winners. And do they tend to be male or female? Who? Um... Uh, well, the ratio's been female. Mm. I'd say a good, good. I don't know. Twelve percent have been the female. They've won, you know, the young lady, they've all ranged in age too. There are young ladies that are winning, and probably about a six percent male winning, and the same all ages. Mm. Awesome. That's been good. No, it's good. Thanks, Charlie. Are you guys going to give it a go? Give it a go, folks. Five dollars, two games. All you got to do is knock the blocks off to win a prize. Five dollars for two games. Don't be shy. Give it a try. Step up and have some fun, folks. Five dollars, two games. Here we go. Young lady. So what are you doing? About to throw the wall to hit the block. Okay, so have you got it sorted how you can do it? Oh, just go for the fluke. You're just going to fluke? Yeah, yeah. That's right. Good luck. And how much is it? How much was it? Uh, five bucks. So, you're the one who missed it first day? Yeah, unfortunately. But you got it. Oh yeah, I got it, I got it. So our little alliance. You know, it sounded like you guys had a bit of a game plan. Oh, um, me and my brother just yeah, went homies, that was our first hope. game plan. Give, no. <laughs> give him false hope, give him false hope on the first shot. Yeah. Easy money here kids, come on, come <laughs> put your money up. The very shy sideshow owner, Charlie. With Ross Hiermara designing the images used in the clothing designed by Aho Creations, here's Joan McSweeney again describing what the word Aho means to her. Aho means line or thread or drawing. Um, so again, it, it's this weaving of um, all parts of the project together. So the continuation of, yes. of Tonga through the generations. Oh, tonga to yep. So um, and so Ross is very very much aware of, of that concept and, and basically he's the, the now generation that's that's taking it through this one. And he knows that in you know five hundred years people are going to look at his artwork and say, Well what's the story behind why he did those and how he did those and what they meant to him. Joan McSweeney. Now at our website after this program you can podcast the show and that's us for another week. So come back next week where Mariah is giving her kina kina Māori a go. That's a revitalisation of Māori sports like Kia Orahi. And if you can call it giving a go, recording from the sidelines, well, that's me. And happy birthday Māori television. It's been five years. E mihi ki nga kai kōrero, mi nga kai rā wiki wiki mihini. Mai te whanau a te ahi kā, kia tātou katoa. Māori ora.